Just two weeks ago, Bitcoin was trading at 42,000. People were calling for new lows. We were going into the mid to low 30,000s. What a difference two weeks makes. Now, Bitcoin up to 52,000, up nearly 25% from that point, hit a high around 53,000 and holding it throughout the weekend. Obviously, it's President's Day in the United States. Happy holiday, everyone. So markets are closed. Gives us a lot more to talk about here with Bitcoin. And since we are now at 52, we have a lot of pundits, traders calling for all-time highs before the halving. I really want to get everyone's take on that idea because I would find that very, very surprising. Guys, we've got the special holiday edition. Mike McGlone, James Lavish, Dave Weisberger of Macro Monday coming to you right now. That's dope. What is up, everybody? I'm Scott Melker, also known as the Wolf of All Streets. Before we get started, please subscribe to the channel and hit the like button. Going to bring on the gentleman now. We have Mike McGlone, James Lavish, and Dave Weisberger. Mike, I see you. I love that you have the Bloomberg step and repeat even in your home setup. You look very professional, very proper, different Mike, looking good. There's no Monday morning meeting for you to recap but what would your Monday morning meeting be if you had to give one on this holiday? So I've, I've enjoyed one thing I love about my job and weekends. It really gives me a chance to catch up on my uh, macro 30,000 feet view. And like today, I'll probably go in the office partly because I have a great commute. If I take my e-bike um, and the 30,000 view, I, I, I enjoy hearing how, oh, we might get recovery out of China and Germany and Europe. And then they miss one key thing. Typically, these things happen a year or two after rate cuts. We haven't even started that. Now, okay, China's got that. Um, at least one thing you should expect in China is a tradable bounce in the Hong Kong, Shanghai, and the uh, most Chinese indices. That's just a matter of time. We got to get that tradable bounce. We're still not getting it. Um, but it's the macro. It's some of the silly things I hear that I enjoy. Even I hear from a lot of the I heard a few copper miners say, no, prices will go up when you know, the Fed starts cutting rates. And the key thing that's really starting to trickle down for me on a daily basis is stuff that's suffering because the Fed hasn't cut rates yet include TLT, bond prices, gold. Um, and the number one thing that's preventing, I think, the Fed from cutting rates is the stock market going up. And I think that's the key thing we all can kind of agree on. There's really little reason with the S&P 500 total return this year, about 6%. That has basically been a good year already. It's only been two months <laughs> that you have to be saying to yourself is, okay, well, this is great, but it's really pushing back and what typically takes for stock markets to go up. It's just the momentum carryover from last year is the way I see it. And the key thing I like to, um, so I'll tilt over to what I'm seeing commodities, pretty much severe deflationary forces with the exception of one commodity and that's crude oil's holding a little bit of a bid because of geopolitical events, which are basically probably going to be bad for crude oil, typically how it works. You look at things like natural gas and corn and industrial metals, they're all at prices equivalent to crude oil going to $40 a barrel. And then I look over at gold's down because the Fed's, they're taking all that easing out. Why are they taking easing out again? Because there's no reason to ease with stock market to go up and inflation sticky. So the key conclusion I've had this weekend is there is, and based on the book I just read called, um, Capitalism without capital, all about the difference between intangibles and tangibles assets. Now, this is a, a world that's going mainly for intangible assets, rightly so. But the thing I, we should think about is it's really odd to expect the inflation to go down when intangible assets are making record highs. So there's our, our, our problem. And a lot of us were on top of that, of that last year. We had that big discount in the S&P 500. We don't have it anymore. But now it's the exact opposite. So I look at it as Bitcoin is proving it's somewhat significant as a leading indicator and a potentially um, maybe a bit of divergent strength. But the key thing I like to point out with Bitcoin is both the Bitcoin and S&P 500 and a five handle. And that to me is what we still haven't seen yet. I just want to get over that point where we get the normal, someday we have to get a correction in the stock market and see Bitcoin not do that. So I tilt over to um, the bottom line is, um, what James and um, Dave have been spot on about, and we have seen, I mean, inflows are well exceeding 
um, supply in Bitcoin. So that's going to continue. The key thing I'll, I'll end with that I enjoyed pointing this weekend, I had a conversation with a, a leading intellectual in London last week about cryptos. And the first thing I showed him was, I would love to go to the coinmarketcap.com and I click on um, volume. I can point out the number one trade in crypto ain't Bitcoin. It's the dollar. It's Tedler. It's almost double the volume on a daily basis of Bitcoin. Now, that's been the case for, what, four years now? Most people don't know that. So I had to make sure I pointed that out. And when I point out that, uh, I'll end with the macro, the big macros. We have a situation where the largest economy in the world, through our normal discourse, has just embraced Bitcoin be with ETFs. And the most widely tracked cryptos are, is the dollar. I mean, the, the most widely traded is the dollar. And then the second largest economy in the world is pushing back and going for gold. And has created this unlimited friendship with the bad guys, Iran, um, Russia, and, and uh, North Korea. So I look at it in a macro standpoint. This is a great time for America. But in the meantime, we have a way overdue area where we need a correction in our equities. We're probably going to get that recession that we know ex that everybody expected last year. And risk assets are very expensive. And the riskiest asset is Bitcoin. Didn't Japan and UK just quietly go into recession there last week officially and nobody's talking about it? Well, they are talking yeah. about but that's the key thing is what stops that? Typically, you need a long and variable lag to easing. Japan's talking about tightening. <laughs> and it's it's yeah. entertaining. Before we jump, uh, I want to go James, but I want to just show you guys a tweet that, uh, Mike, you just reminded me of. Russell Okung, who may, many may know is an NFL uh, athlete and star and literally quit the NFL to go on a spiritual journey and to promote Bitcoin and the Lightning Network across Africa, literally incredible guy. He tweeted this on the 17th, two days ago. During my time in Africa, while advocating for the Lightning Network, I faced a cold, hard realization. Despite my efforts, I found that more people were interested in dealing with USDT rather than Bitcoin. They desired USD, even if they were synthetic versions. Yeah, it's, <laughs> that's interesting. Well, I mean, you know, because they, there's so many people who are unbanked, right? There are 1.5 billion people in uh, the world who are unbanked. And uh, and if you're in a in an area that is oppressive or um, you, you're you know, your money can be seized or uh, you you have high inflation, then you want to protect it by having the dollar because the dollar is the, the most stable of all the uh, currencies around the world. Right. So that's not really surprising. Tether is interesting because, I mean, we've gotten to the point where the Treasury needs Tether. Right. Because what is the biggest holding of, of Tether? It's, it's U.S. Treasuries and specifically T-bills. And so they need to they need to hold uh, they need to allow Tether to keep operating in order to keep operating at these massive deficits. So and it's interesting, Mike, you talk about the, the stock market. And I agree. We, we do need a sell off in the stock market and asset prices for for us to uh, to for the Fed to have. Kind of their, um, their, their. I guess they need some ammunition to lower rates, and that that is essential. They need that. But what's interesting here, and I'm going to pull this up here, Scott, and share a screen on uh, on something. So if you can, there you go. Here, if you think about this, what's happening is we, you know, we were talking about this last week. Is you you have monetary policy which is tightening. And you've got fiscal policy, which is loosening. I mean, we're running multi-trillion multi dollar deficits at a time we're not even in a recession. This is just nuts, right? So if you, we all know that the U.S. government has been spending massively. And what does that do? Well, we're spending on, we're, we're spending on uh, defense. This right here is a statement from the Department of Defense. We're talking about how every single NATO nation needs to be spending at least 2% of GDP on defense. If they're not, they need to get there. Wow. Right. So, I mean, like that's a massive amounts of money being poured into defense spending. And then you've got things like this, the, the Biden infrastructure, the, the Inflation Reduction Act, which is just pouring money into all these uh, infrastructure projects, which, yeah, we do need to spend money on infrastructure. That's good. But it's it, it's inflationary. We're, we're, we're we continue to pour money into uh, areas of the economy. It's not it's not it's not widespread they're pockets that are getting this capital you know but then you've got they're 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 the u.s government is pouring money into the semiconductor industry i mean like they're just pockets where they're picking and choosing and, and just dumping capital into it. so if people are sitting here wondering 
why are why are we seeing areas of inflation yet areas of of pain you know you've got the young consumers their credit card debt is is getting to a point where they're they're not paying that off now you you know we're increasing our levels of defaults on credit card debt for young consumers to the point of where it was in the great financial crisis so it's it's kind of a it's it's a real strange dynamic and and it brings us back to the point of small companies are going to start being really uh, constrained for capital with interest rates that are held at this level. And at some point that balance tips, does it tip us into a recession or does it tip off some sort of credit event that, uh, that causes a, a steep downward uh, sell-off in, in asset prices and in, in actually everything because you know the correlation of one trade does that happen? And this is where we're kind of at. And we're everybody's trying to figure out, are we having a soft landing? Are we, are we pushing our way towards some sort of economic crisis, some sort of um, you know, uh, credit event? Or are we just going to have no landing and take right back off before the election? Because it's election year and we're going to keep spending. It's, it's, a, it's a strange dynamic. Okay. So- there are two two totally separate threads that James and Mike have gone through, and I, I want I want to address both of them. The first, because I teased it in a tweet, um, the thesis about Tether is fascinating. People don't understand that Tether has two use cases; they're both important. Uh, use case number one: people in the global periphery who have crappy currencies who want to be able to trade and 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 spend and hold their money in dollars because it's money that they need to spend over the next, you know, whatever, six months, three months, two months, whatever. But it's money that they're not saving for the they long They can have part. it right on their phone. They don't, right, right on their yeah. phone. Yeah. So, you know, if you ask the question in my, and one of the areas, there are lots of areas that Mike and I actually agree on. I know a lot of, a lot of your, a lot of our audience tends to try to stir up shit between the two of us, but <laughs> we disagree on a couple things, but we agree on more than we disagree. One of the things we agree on is that in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king and the dollar has an eye. And most of the rest of these currencies are, are walking around like Mr. Magoo. And uh, and that's an old person reference for, for those who don't know <laughs> that. That was a cartoon character who had big glasses who was functionally blind. It's actually kind of funny. But Mrs. What, we've got Mrs. Magoo. Right. So in any event, uh, <laughs> the, the use case for Tether, that is the that, that is for people to hold dollars. I mean, anyone who's traveled in uh, lots of countries I've traveled in with crappy currencies, you pull out your dollars and they are happier to take that than their local currency. You know, they love Americans in various places in Africa uh, and in South America. So, you know, it is. It is what it is. That's where Tether has a huge use case. Now, is that its dominant use case? Absolutely not. Sorry, Mr. Okung, you, you're a great player and I really love what you've been doing, but the truth of the matter is it's not the dominant use case for Tether. The dominant use case for Tether is as a gateway into buying crypto, full stop. And so that's something that is extremely important for people to understand. Which is why they want to stop it, however, they can't because of the total size. But the point that I'm going to make here is both of those use cases have something in common. The people who have currencies that depreciate 20% a month or more, they don't care about the fact that they're not getting a yield. It doesn't matter to them. They're going to spend the dollars anyway. So to them, moving and using Tether and holding Tether out of their local currency is a lifeline. And they don't give a crap that Tether is the most profitable company on earth because there's five plus percent interest rate that they get on treasuries, whatever. The second group of people, the people who want to buy or sell crypto, they don't care either because they think they can make a lot more than 5%. And so they don't care. So Tether has this ridiculously, you know, it's not one of those things that's likely to last for decades, but it could last for years. Uh, of where there are people who are willing to let them scalp 5% on float. The U.S. banks tried this. So to those who think that this is this is unique, remember, before Silicon Valley Bank dropped, one of the what was happening was most of the large money center banks 
had interest rates despite 5% on the uh, you know on the short rate from the fed they were giving a quarter of a percent of yield on savings accounts or, or checking accounts something like that it's still rather low so but for anyone who looks at tether and says well wait a minute you know how could they get away with this well the answer is because people who want to spend the dollars eh, they don't really care they, they just need it so that's thing number 1 and and when you look at tether and you look at at what what what, what russell okung said the answer is very, very clear. And that is, yeah, Bitcoin for people who have disposable income and who actually can save, it's a savings vehicle. It's not a spending vehicle. And so that that's thing number one that needs to be talked about. Now, there's a, a remind me, I want to blister the moronic takes about BlackRock's taking over the financial system in Bitcoin, because there's a lot of stupidity in the Bitcoin maxi world that we should talk about, but we'll get back to that. The second thing is when we talk about are monetary conditions actually tight right now? The answer is no, they are not. You have slightly above real rate, you know, you maybe have real rates that are slightly, you know, positive, uh, depending on how you measure inflation. But they're hardly at historical, uh, anything historically high. You know, I would say, you know, most people would say monetary policy from a rate perspective is slightly restrictive, not accommodative right now in the United States, whereas it's definitely accommodative in most countries around the world. Certainly Japan is is ridiculously accommodative, but, but Japan has been ridiculously accommodative for the long term. But why do I make the statement that it's not, that monetary policy is not restrictive? The answer is because we're pumping liquidity in as fast as we can. In other because you can't ignore the fiscal side of the world. You can't ignore $2 trillion deficits. And, and, you know, James and I talk about how nuts it is. People don't understand. We are in a situation that makes, that historically, if you parachuted anybody from any era to today, and they said, and they looked at, the deficit of percentage of GDP, government spending in the U.S. as a percentage of GDP, got spending compared to uh, expenses, and you said, and you showed them the unemployment rate, <clears throat> and you told them that we weren't officially at war, although obviously we were unofficially somewhat, you know, in lots of conflicts, they would say, no, that can't be. It literally makes no sense. And the reason it makes no sense is because typically the government has supposed to be, the argument is that there's this contra-business cycle, that the government expands when private demand is low, but private demand isn't low. And so that money is has to go somewhere. The big conclusion, what does all this mean? Well, what it means is we have literally institutionalized a policy over the last you know couple of years to try to get back to something that we were at, which is the rich get richer, the poor don't, but at least the poor, but hopefully the poor won't be complaining, but they're failing on the latter part. So what do I mean by that? I've said this before, inflation is monetary, full stop. That's Milton Friedman said that, but what he missed and what people don't talk about and people kind of beat around the edges is it depends what's getting inflated. When assets get inflated, that helps the rich and wealth inequality goes way the hell up. And when assets inflate, it also triggers investment in things that are disinflationary from a consumer point of view. Multiple examples. Mike loves to talk about and is totally right that when you trigger investment in natural gas exploration, in oil exploration, in better technologies for extracting oil out of, out of sludgy tar sands in Canada and, and shale, that U.S. is now the largest producer. Would we be the largest producer if interest rates had been uh, high and if we weren't targeting a significant, we weren't trying to prioritize investment? Probably not, but we are. And so that's a good thing. But that's consumer disinflationary, asset inflationary. And and there are many, many examples of that. Technology, we were at our local Costco yesterday. <laughs> Anyone who's ever gone to Costco when there's a massive rainstorm in Florida would understand what kind of experience that was. But... <laughs> It was unbelievable. It was like a monsoon yesterday. Did you have but, to show your ID? What? No, Did you it, it, your ID to get in? No, it, it wasn't. It wasn't so much that it was packed. It was that you couldn't because everyone was kind of standing under the overhang, and then it was pouring. Yeah. It, was, it was crazy. But the, the fact is, is that more than half the the checkouts are now the self checkouts or the the automated ones, and so there's less and more and more technology, less and less people, and that's that's fairly obvious. That's going to happen. So. I think that people need to understand that. So the fact is, we have this fiscal policy that is forcing expansion, but we have cracks in the financial system. 
And if anyone who thinks that that the that the reason that Powell didn't say what he did and that the market is saying, yeah, maybe one or two cuts now for the rest of the year, and you can look at the yield curve. The yield curve has not been this flat in a long time. Understands that there's a fundamental disconnect in the economy, and the politicians are terrified about that. Powell went on 60 Minutes to say, well, "I'm not political." You know, as I said, I think I said this a couple times. A Shakespeare line: "Methinks thou doth protest too much," is rather <laughs> obvious. He may not want to be political, but the reality is, the pressure is going to be huge. And yeah. we've said, been yeah. talking about this. I think the Fed will uh, will cut rates when they see something is about to break to the extent that they're any good at that, which is another way of saying, I don't think they cut for a while uh, until something breaks. Until something breaks. Because they always, it's always, they wait until the last, and then it's just too late. Okay. So, and I just pulled this up and I want to I ask Mike and we'll move over to Mike on the energy because this is what you're talking about, Dave. And this right here shows the the estimated real rate. This is what the Fed uses. That blue line is what they is what that um, is a neutral rate, right? So it shows that we're above. I'm sorry that um, the white line is the neutral rate. The blue line is where we are in Fed funds on on a real rate, and so it shows that we haven't been we haven't been this far above the neutral rate since the 80s. And so this is what people are freaking out about. Is like we. If you look through all the 2000s, uh, from from basically from the great financial crisis all the way until now, we've been kind of we we've not only been uh, lower than the neutral rate, which is expansionary, meaning that it the money is cheap enough that it, it expands, right? Because you can borrow and spend. But if you look in here, it was negative for most of that time. So it, it was you were being paid to take to take money and borrow it and go invest in the economy. So the problem is now it, it suddenly we've jacked these rates up from that you could see that that V draw down and spike back up in rates. And now people are freaking out because they're thinking something's gonna break or oh my God, I need that that free stimulus. I need I, I can't operate without it. I built my whole business model around it and now, I have to pay from what I, what do you mean? I have to pay to borrow. That's, I can't do that. Like I just said, my, my business model doesn't allow for that. And so uh, going to what Dave was talking about with, with energy and that feeds right into um, Mike's wheelhouse here is this is, this is a new, this is kind of a, a new horizon for many people in business over the last couple of decades. Mike, before I jump in, <laughs> uh, well, I, it's and, okay, <laughs> Scott. Unless you want to transition, because I have a few things I want to add there. I think it's it's the um, I can mention a dozen books I've read that have really honed my view. But um, actually, a lot of times I do more listening because I'm the worst reader. But I love to do stuff and listen. I think a lot of our our listeners are doing that now. Um, and that is the key book that really struck me was we all know Jeff Booth and the Price of Tomorrow. I mean, a big Bitcoiner. He crushed it. Unfortunately, I read it, too, read it a little too early. The, the deflationary forces he talked about are happening clearly, most notably in China, um, catching up in the U.S. And then there's another book by um, called the, the Domino Effect by uh, what was his name? Brazil was the last name, um, and just pointed out how you just the whole world is starting to catch up to the U.S. technology. That remember when we were kids, we were you know oh we had to build that SPR and we had problems with. Wars over in the Middle East, and we, you know, we had recessions. That doesn't happen anymore. It's the way things have changed so much; it's dramatic. Um, but to me, the key thing that is striking now is I'll get two things that I, I can't write about yet, but I want to: is the leadership that's happening in China right now must fail. Um, presidency. If it doesn't, the whole rest of the world will follow that model and say, "Oh, it's okay." Look at South America, and it's also on that same page. The what we're doing with fiscal and monetary stimulus in this economy must fail because if it doesn't, it'll just keep happening until it does. I mean, it, just a normal little recession would correct the correct the excesses of we all know what we did when we thought we were going to die three years ago with too much liquidity. The good news is we haven't suffered yet, thank God. But other people have. China is a good example. Another book, The Price of Time, is pointing out what's happening there. It's a Great Depression kicking in. So that's the way I'm looking at it is maybe we're early, but I'm hoping to get through the end of this year and say that we um, did okay with this 
transition. But the problem is, as you pointed, it's what is it, $1.6 trillion of GDP growth last year that cost $2.5 trillion of deficit spending? I mean, you mentioned that's just shocking. You come down from another planet and you say, yeah, good luck with that one, guys. Now, of <laughs> course, you can, you can say Japan's been doing it okay. China, they say, is similar levels if you look at numbers from JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs. But it's, um, and then you have these other assets that you can protect yourself. Um, I just look at it as, the number one factor, I think, this year is what's happening in China, the second largest economy kind of imploding. But what are they doing? They're creating massive deflation. They switched over from focusing on the property market. As I heard, President Z shifted a lot of the banking to EVs and, and um, solar. So what does that mean? Massive exports. Why, is China, why does Europe have to push back on exports of China EVs? Because they have to. Um, because it's just crushing their businesses. So to me, that's the deflation just kicking in. I, I have facts to point that out. If you look P at PPI, even after last week, finished goods in the U.S., the average from the U.S., China, top markets, Japan, and Germany, it's, it's minus 3%, yet Fed funds are 5%. That spread at 8% has never been wider. So it takes some time. And I think this is where I have to push my, Dave and I, we have to agree, but we have to disagree or why bother have both of us on this program is, I see what you mean about liquidity, but to me, the liquidity's trickled down for one thing. The whole world knows, and I'll end on this. The whole world knows, I think every professional big picture money manager on the planet knows is the risk reward of that US little, that little old stock market just dropping for a down year, say maybe 2%, 3%, 5%, you know, stuff that used to happen is so exponential on what's happening with significant deflationary forces and recessionary trends in the rest of the world that it has to go up, which is part of the reason why you have to be very careful being long it been wrong, but we've had other issues, where you can, places where you can do better performance, like cryptos and Bitcoin. That's to me is why this year is going to be defining. So I'll end with this. What I, two years ago, I said crude oil is going to go to 40. I've been wrong. As an ex-trader, I know I wouldn't have stopped out and lost money. So I put fill or kill on this year. I still think it's going there. I've done the equivalent in natural gas. I've done the equivalent in corn. I've done the equivalent in industrial metals. And that's where I am from my commodity bias standpoint is um, I don't see what gets this better until you have a long and variable lag, a significant amount of Federal Reserve easing. easing. What's stopping that from happening? The strong stock market. I want to say yeah. one thing, Dave, before you jump in. Uh, I was muted before. Uh, listen, we all know John Maynard Keynes, right? The market can stay irrational longer than you can remain solvent. Uh, that plays for individual investors, of course, who are trying to trade these markets. But I think it's a cautionary tale at this point for the entire system. And I'm starting to believe that Everyone with a rational, here, here's what I'll say. The four of us are way too smart to have a conversation about what's actually going on because we actually dig in. And the reality is the government just wants to kick the can as far down the road before the inevitable collapse that they know is coming. And they know that there's no way to stop it, right? So to me, it becomes increasingly more difficult to call for the recession in three months or six months or nine months or 12. I don't know when it's going to come. The thing is, I believe that when it does finally come, whatever that event is, there's absolutely no stopping the endless hole that comes. comes well, I, mean, and most, most, I think most, they can kick the can yeah. further down the road than all of us believe for a very, very long time. Agreed. And, and most, most economists and, and most investors from last year, you know, all the calls for recession, including myself, I just did not expect us to pour so much fiscal stimulus into the into the system. I just did not expect it to be the, the these deficits to be so large on the back. And I, I expected the deficits to grow mostly because of because of just the debt burden, not because we were adding to it right. senselessly. I like I just I just did not expect it to be so haphazard and reckless. And but that's where that's we're at. Point. I should, that's I should, point. I should so, have handicapped but, the the you know the election but, but, year a little bit better. But but that's also my point is that the expectation for anyone who studies history or has watched this would be that the Fed would start printing and they would fix it on the monetary side. But they have this whole other fiscal playbook that nobody's even paying attention to. And because they haven't done it in this manner in the past, everybody's going to take a long time to catch up to that trick. And I'm just yeah. I'm just surprised at how many tricks they have to prop this thing up. There's countless. Yeah. And, the, and the point, and it goes right back to what Dave's statement was, is that the Fed will hold rates high. You know, we don't know. The Fed may have to raise rates at, at some point. I, if, you and if, I both if, tweeted if about it. Like I this, said, right? you and I just tweeted about that this weekend. It's just insane, us. right? So, and, and, and the point is, it's going to continue on until the, the Fed has no choice. And until something breaks and that, you know, and when we say something breaks, it means that there's a 
there's a catastrophic failure at some level, whether it's a small company that that tips off through through contagion other companies or other banks, or it's a large company that just fails because of some unforeseen event, but it's because monetary uh, policy is so tight that it, 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 it prevents them from being able to save themselves. So, so I, I think that, that if to understand where my investment thesis disagrees, it is about the last, you know, seven to eight minutes of conversation. I think that there are enough smart people who control enough money that look at Bitcoin as an opt out in the long term, a bet on the lack of confidence in our system. And you basically heard all three of you, myself, or all four of us, basically saying we are fucked. Let's understand something. We may be not screwed now, but we are fucked in the long term. Sorry for the F-bomb, but it, it literally encapsulates what every one of us is saying. We, the U.S. is the best of the bunch, but the fact is the bunch is screwed. China building cities that no one's going to live in and all that stuff eventually comes home to roots. I mean, Mike blithely made the comment of G pivoting away from real estate. Why? Because they built so much real estate that they have no use for. And so you spend a lot of money and you employ people and you build this stuff and then no one has the money to sit and go and actually use it. It's a problem. It's called malinvestment. And we have, have had malinvestment on a global scale. Japan started it. We and you know China and the US have been equally running races to, to see who can malinvest in what. And malinvestment literally means building stuff, investing in something that were conditions to be normal, there's no way it would make sense. People would say, no, the ROI, return on investment on this investment doesn't make any sense. But yet we've been doing it for decades as a systematic policy globally. Now, the reason that I mention this is because I tend to agree with Mike about the stock market. I think it's price to perfection. If you pulled up James's little chart, where the last time real rates were up, early 2000 looks so much like now, it's scary in so many ways. In early 2000, we had a blow off top in the first couple months of the year into mid-March when people started having to pay their tax bills for the previous year. And boom, I'll never forget a 15% correction in the NASDAQ index in one day in March and a bit of a sell-off that you know got corrected. And then, they, then it rallied again kind of a lower breadth rally, and I'm not sure there could be much of a lower breadth rally than we've had recently, but we'll leave that alone. Uh, a lower breadth rally into uh, what ended up happening in the fall. And Dave, I just want to, I'm not interrupting. That was an election year, just like well, this. Oh, is. yes. It's and very so people, people should realize that if you believe in the uh, political, uh, that they're interfering with the market, they would want it to crash now and then rally into the I, actual I don't, And I don't think that they're interfering, but there's tremendous pressure to not interfere negatively. That's right. the point. But, but the point is, I want to continue the, the, the point here, is because I think we look at Bitcoin, it's a trillion dollar market. It's tiny. It's very, very small. And 70% of that trillion dollar market doesn't won't sell. You know, us diamond handers, you know, I have, mo you know, mine in cold storage, You whatever, we all do. And the truth of the matter is 70% of Bitcoin isn't for sale. And when you look at what the marginal amount that it takes to move the price, it's not much. So now we just had a narrative change where the entire investing public is, and they haven't, is hearing about it personally. They're, they can't for until they're allowed to advertise here about it, you know, louder. But the truth is, Bitcoin is being positioned by people like Larry Fink and not in addition to us. I mean, we've been saying it for a while as an opt out. It's like if you want a long term bet that we're fucked, what's the way to play it? The way to play it is Bitcoin. And that's the issue. The issue is it doesn't take much. So do I expect a D-link this year? Yes. Do I see Bitcoin strength now? as proving it? Yes. Do I hear all the bullishness on crypto town halls or all the stuff we do? Does that bother me? Yes, it bothers me, except for there's a simple problem. A lot of people aren't voting with their feet. The money that's coming into the sector isn't coming from the crypto bros. They've been trying to rotate into altcoins and getting punished over the last few months, right? Or some of them doing really well. Some altcoins have done phenomenal. I mean, Solana, Injective, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But the truth is, the money that's coming in is a trickle of people 
who are saying, hey, I need to get me some of that opt-out hedge also. And it's really small. And I just and that's you can pull up the chart, Scott, of, uh, of the Bitcoin and, and NASDAQ. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry, right. Dave. And so, you know, you have that. And then the other thing that's been going on are, yeah, China has been the bid for gold. But the ETFs and the individuals and the people are, are, are drawing down their gold uh, safety net and moving into Bitcoin at a very slow, a slow moment, but it's, it's yeah. there. But consider the size. Gold is yeah. still north of 10 times larger than Bitcoin for this monetary use. And so, yeah, that's been my thesis. Do I expect uh, all-time highs in Bitcoin? Yes, I do. do. Why do I expect it? Because I don't think we're going to get uneffed anytime soon. And I think people are going to continue to want that hedge. And I just don't think there's enough supply at these levels. I want to show you something before uh, to, to confirm what you're saying. This is a uh, chart of net transfer volume from two exchanges for Bitcoin. This was the biggest day we've had in a very, very long time it was just uh, yesterday and today. Coins rapidly leaving exchanges. And then if you look right now, Coinbase uh, effectively hasn't had this few Bitcoin on the exchange since 2015. This is the price going up. This is the supply on Coinbase dropping. Yeah, so you don't need, you don't need to, you don't need to conjecture at least. Yeah. Now, to I be do, clear, I guys, do. supply can come back real fast. Yeah, yeah. It's it, just it, one it transaction. That's important. <laughs> yeah. I saw some analysis about this. I want people to understand, the audience should understand that, yes, that is true, but there is a but here. With Fireblocks, with coppers, uh, you know, they're pushing to for Clearloop and other places, people and the OTC desks of the world can move coins around much faster and don't have to leave them on exchange. Plus, with Coinbase's concentration and custody with the ETFs, I think a lot of other custodians are winning different types of business. So I do think that that's a little overstated. But that said, there's just not that much supply if demand goes up. And demand is going up, and you can see it. Bloomberg, you know, James and Eric do a phenomenal job yeah. of tracking those inflows. Look, there's probably another two trillion in GBTC that almost certainly has to get let. Not two trillion, two, uh, two, you know, uh, billion. two billion in GBTC that has to get liquidated. Uh, that's still held as collateral in various bankruptcies and whatnot. Yeah, uh, the market's already kind of shrugged that off and said, "Okay, well, it'll get absorbed." That the market shrugged that off because we saw that every two days for almost two weeks when the ETFs were approved and prices higher than when the ETFs were approved. So right. rationally, that we know that that's not such a big overhang. Yeah. Mike, it seems like you're dying to say something. Well, I got to piggyback on that because um, after we clicked, uh, we finished our um, macro Mondays last Monday. I hopped on my bike and went over to the ETF exchange ETF event in uh, at the Fountain Blue in Mountain Beach. It's the best bike ride in Miami, particularly in February, from a guy from Chicago. Um, and it was shocking the difference from last year. So I went back on Tuesday and there was one major panel, which my colleague Eric Beltunis was the moderator and some major uh, major ETF providers, Bitcoin ETF providers. Matt Hogan was one of them. Grayscale was there. And what a difference a year makes. And I was kind of skeptical. I figured, okay, most like I pointed on the show, I figured most what I've experienced in commodities and gold my whole life is, yeah, what are the compounded earnings over time? I mean, that's what you get in gold commodities. You're better off in equities because you get, you know, you get smart people creating um, dividends and actually doing buybacks. And Bitcoin doesn't have that, but I was shocked. There was his panel was wall to wall all the way out into the food court. So I went to, I figured, okay, there's only one other panel at the same time. I went and checked that that one out. Same type of seating, half the number of people. So the thing I really enjoyed about here, you know, frame, I always view myself as just viewing it from the outsider view is you go to a Bitcoin conference, you get a lot of lambs. You know what lambs are? They wear outfits to they say, look at me, or tattoos and stuff. At these ETF conferences, you get the professionals, men in, in suits and coats, gray hairs, and women in dresses. I mean, they're professional money managers. And I was impressed. They were all interested in this Bitcoin thing. Teach us about it. What do we need to know? And what you said, um, Dave, but you said, James, you mentioned too, is the marketing is just overwhelming. I was on the sell side of that marketing. So I have to say, and if you look at that and you look at the price action, it was, when you get that sharp correction, it comes right back. As a trader, you say, oh, okay, I get it. Reject support, come right back to resistance. I mean, that that's impressive. And I figured, because that I see that. And then, so I still have that problem. I got to see how it responds to, and I hope Dave's right, is when we get that correction, the equity might. Right now, it's just a high, be, high, valve, high beta measure. It has been. Maybe that's changing. But I have to admit, going to this event, which was kind of my epiphanies in 2018 when I went to Hong Kong, and they all told me about 
No, no, Mike, it's not about cryptos. It's about the dollar. I got it then. And it's just more. So that's when it was only $2 billion now. And now it's like $142 billion through crypto dollars. But this is what I wanted to point out is that exchange event last year, which was a downer. So I talked to Mike Schoenstein last year. And his quote to me was, Mike, should I sue the SEC? I'm like, well, Fred Pye did it in Canada and it worked. So let's give credit to where credit's due. Profiles and courage. He did and he won. Imagine if he had lost. What would do for his life, his reputational risk, his career and everything? He won. So let's look forward. How is history going to judge people like Elizabeth Warren might like say, good luck with that one? I have to say really quickly, what you just said makes me obviously more bullish. We had made the argument on this show that the ETF trade was done, right? What's the next narrative? What's the next thing we're going to look at? Well, we're sitting at 52,000. The inflows are massive. So maybe the traders trading around the approval, that narrative and trade was done. But I think it's pretty clear with the supply side on exchanges dropping and the inflows, we, it's, it, it hasn't it's even just started. Beginning. Like, you, we have to Most keep of the people in that room were there for the first time, maybe even hearing about Bitcoin for the first time, and they just showed up because it was the crowded panel. Exactly. Look, all, all you have to know is this, that on the weekend, that the spread to March futures in the CME are at the high end of the range. It will fade when they can trade other things to hedge. You have all these people trying to hedge Bitcoin ETF trades using one vehicle when the rest of the world, there's literally no premium in any of the perpetual swaps, whether it be Tether or, or um, it's slot. It, there's like $30 premiums. I'm looking at it right now. Funding Actually, rates are flat. Funding rates are but, flat. The leverage market is not. There. There's no out. speculation coming from outside the world. And and the point that, 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 that Michael is crystallizing is that look, there's just not that much supply of Bitcoin in this opt-out trade, and these people are trying to learn about it. I mean, look, I came from this world, right? I didn't go to the ETF conferences here or the Equity Leader Summit. Uh, you know, I've spoken at that at like five straight years. It's just because enough is enough. I mean, you know, they, they can come to me now, right? You know, the answer is what happens if Grayscale didn't sue or Grayscale lost? My first thought was I have to learn to say, would you like fries with that? I don't know. But, you know, you know, instead, I mean, coin routes is profitable where, you know, we've traded over 175 billion through our platform now. And, you know, we're 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 helping our clients execute better. Uh, and, you know, it's like it's really kind of important to understand. It's really kind of important. Hold on, I got to close the door. My wife. Yeah, the, you know the, the point. The, the point here, though, is and Mike has uh, had uh, made a, a good a, a good display. The the point is that the narrative has shifted, but it's slow. It takes so long for these people to understand. Like I'm telling you, we all we all come from this institutional investing background, and to to think of explaining Bitcoin to chief investment officer who doesn't know anything about it is it just sounds daunting because to get them over that hump man it is a that is a long road of teaching and understanding it's not this this is not something they're just going to pick up on overnight the good what, what i think uh some people uh, a lot of people including myself i was i was much more optimistic about it i thought that there were a lot more investment managers who were poised and ready to take advantage of it immediately but we're seeing it more of a trickle. The on-ramps are being built. You know, they're being allowed to talk to it, solicit their investors, not just take unsolicited uh, orders. It's starting, but it's it. And this is what is encouraging. Act actually, I think it's a much more powerful and sustainable growth uh, if you if you have it slowly rather than everybody just rushing all at once. Oh, they got their Facebook IPO. What do I have? How are they making money? Oh my God, it's not as much advertising as I thought it was. Everybody sells off. You know, it, it's not that. It's more of a slow build, which I think is a much healthier build into the ecosystem. Can yeah, I I mean, one Go ahead. Sorry, I was just going to say that one of the things that, that I find amusing is when you look at the rally that Bitcoin went from 42,000 to 52,000. Hold on. So let me let me piggyback on Dave real quick. There's two things I need to um, point out is at Bloomberg, I'm a very good, happy employee, but they've asked me to cover cryptos a little bit less. Dave, I'm going to piggyback right to you. So one other thing I've been pointing out for years is you can't hold gold anymore, in my view, without some Bitcoin in that space. And now we have this epic 
um, paradigm shift in the global world order that's only going to be judged from the future. And in, in the middle, it's hard to measure these things where the largest demand pull source for gold on the planet now is China, the People's Bank of China. According to the World Gold Council, they are buying gold at a colossal pace. Okay, so there's a, a country, a person, let's not, let's give China credit, let's give this credit potentially to the president who's tilted over to the bad guys, Russia, Iran, North Korea. And then there's this other country, this is the world's largest economy in the world, that we will beat each other up, but we have the right to do that. We won't have, don't have to suffer. We might get fired, but we're not going to get killed. Um, but we have, we beat ourselves up and we just proved Bitcoin ETF. So what is the vested interest of the U.S. government? And by the way, our currency is the one that this space has gone to organic. And most people in China who trade cryptos when they can illegally are doing it with the dollar. So what's our vested interest? Hmm. Gold or cryptos and Bitcoin? We can answer that question. <laughs> it's just the macro is overwhelming. How's history going to judge this, this period? It's absolutely right. And, and I think that, that, that you need to understand the, the dynamics of the market structure are changing. So like I was just mentioning, we had a rally from 42,000 to, to 52,000. And before that happened, you had all these people talking about God candles and this is and that, you know, all the stuff. Meanwhile, what did we actually see? What we saw is a rally that looked exactly the same as the rally in Microsoft and Cisco and et cetera, back from the early days of 2000, that analogy, i.e. it rallies three to 5% on a day and that's it. And people stop buying. So the buy spigot turns off. Why? Because anyone who's ever sat in an institutional trading desk knows that after a certain point, money managers say, okay, I'm not going to chase it today. We'll, 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 we'll take it back up again tomorrow. And that literally happened for four or five straight days. And so we saw this rally and it looked very, very different. And the people in crypto are like, yeah, but it's strange. You know, and, and what is that? Well, that is the institution. That is what institutionalization looks like. It looks like, you know, people will allocate and they'll allocate a small amount and then small relative to them, but big relative to crypto. Things move higher and they're like, OK, I'm done. And and that matters because what you end up with is we've always said this and this is the, just the beginning we've always said that if bitcoin achieves and we all know i talk about it's an option and uh, and I, i'm not going to go through that whole thing again but plenty of your your our our the people on twitter abuse me for constantly repeating myself but effectively we are starting to see the initial stages of bitcoin volatility decreasing the problem is is that if in fact animal spirits wake up in the Bitcoin community, if in fact everyone were truly voting with their money instead of just talking about their own book that they expected to go higher, well, that's a different story. Then yeah, you can see a lot. We have not seen any leverage really in this rally. And that's why, you know, coin glass, when you look at liquidations, and we always do that, Scott, I know you do too. It's it, it kind of looks like a descending wedge, really. I mean, there, there hasn't been happening and we've had a fair amount of movement. That decrease in volatility is extremely healthy. I like and, to talk about a decrease in volatility as if we didn't go from 42 to 52 in two weeks. Well, like, because it what? didn't happen in a day. That's 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 the point. You know, when it went when so when, now we have weekly god candles instead of daily god candles. But there, well, let's also remember there was a very good reason for that. The advent of ETFs, a lot of us have been waiting for for the winkle boss for 10 years. I mean, a really good reason for that volatility. Now we're in that stage where Okay, well, we have the halving coming up. What do we do after April? Okay, we have to. We know what's going to happen, but it's in a much more stage stage now. It's a mature adult, and there's that bid below. But the key thing I want to just piggyback on what Dave said a little bit: there is clearly outflows in gold ETFs, and obviously clearly inflows. Four billion in last week. There is clear yeah. money coming from macro. Um, large caps into Bitcoin. The question is what accelerates that? We all know what, what that might take. But it's by the way, I, I, I have a quick take on what happens next, and maybe the group doesn't hear doesn't want to hear it. But it's Ethereum and it's altcoins, and that's what that's what probably comes next in that boring period. I mean, listen, Easy. if you look, if you dig in, Ethereum's fundamental supply outlook better than Bitcoin's. If you look, yeah. obviously, Bitcoin is still inflationary, but that drops progressively. Bit Ethereum is actually deflationary. I'm not making a case for ETH. I'm just telling you. And then you have yeah. now the institution saying, listen, this ETF trade is going to be next. You can see ETH is literally advertising on every single one of these, which I right. find hilarious as we're talking about it. But then you take a look. Total market cap. This is excluding Bitcoin and Ethereum. Ignore the lines. It doesn't matter. It just made a new high since 2022 of May. Right, $555 billion. That's excluding Bitcoin and Ethereum. So as much as it feels like the altcoin market is dragging, 
it's rising fast. So Bitcoin gets boring. If Bitcoin gets boring, I don't think it's the end of this market. I think we start to see the real degeneracy uh, flow into the altcoin market as we have in past cycles. Maybe I'll be wrong this time, but every other cycle, every other altcoin cycle has seen Bitcoin move back towards support, not 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 be pinned almost to resistance. This time, it instead of moving back towards support. Uh, it's it's moving towards resistance, but it's because the different type of buyers. So I actually believe that relatively speaking, that the crypto community is not short, but is underweight Bitcoin compared to where they would be if they thought this was a Bitcoin upcycle. And, and that seems to be the case. I also want to go back to something that Mike said about China. Uh, I personally, now I know this sounds like a tinfoil hat theory, but the fact that China has 21% of the world Bitcoin mining capacity at this point, to think that that's not money, that's not Bitcoin going into China's coffers, you know, to augment their gold purchases, which is their way of buying Bitcoin. Uh, I think you're crazy if you think. Well, that may that may help explain the, just the sheer hash, the hash rate just going straight up. You know, yeah, I, I believe the Chinese government is mining Bitcoin uh, in the same way they're buying gold. I don't think that there are. I think they realize, and and it's true that if they were to buy Bitcoin on the open market, that chain analysis and other people would know they're doing it. And that would be a headline and they don't want to support it. But the fact is, I think they feel the need for sound money assets. And I think that that's where the mining is coming from. Now, I could be wrong. There's nobody really knows the truth here in the West that I know of. I haven't seen, I've heard people make this speculation before, but it's entirely possible. And it's worth understanding that. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, one of the one of the important parts of what you were saying before, Dave, and I think, Mike, you were touching on is that, look, institutional investors coming into this space, th- this is still just a, a nascent asset to them. They don't understand it. But as they do get to understand it, it becomes something that they have to own and it becomes something that has to be in the portfolio. And that's kind of what we're working towards. Um when you look at the the Magnificent Seven, you wonder why are they going up every single day? To Dave's point, you just have an allocation. You're like, I have to own it. If I don't own it, I have to explain to my investors why we don't own it. I've got to own a little bit. So what am I going to do? I'm just going to I'm going to VWAP into it. What does that mean? You yeah. give a trader an order that says volume weighted average price, and all they do is all day long they just buy a little bit all day long just to stay with the volume, and then they say. Oh, I got the same price as everybody else did. And then it, it just keeps going up. And that's exactly what happens when you have these th- these clusters of stocks or this area that or this seg- segment that you have to own. Right. So if you whether it's a sector or it's just these mag seven, you have to own them. You're VWAPing into it. And until Bitcoin will, I believe, get to that point where it is an asset, separate asset class that you must own, just like bonds, just like tech stocks, just like healthcare, you've got to own a little bit. And that's when you get that just every single day, that VWAP. And you and that is what will kill the volatility, but it's a double-edged sword. Because when you have so much capital in that in that asset, that when you do have a drawdown and you have a, you have that correlation to one event, this is going to this is going to be affected just as much, if not more, than anything else. Right. It is parenthetically interesting that one of uh, our more popular algos recently that we've just enhanced is a very parameterized percent of volume participation algorithm uh, being used for crypto, Bitcoin, etc. So it, you know it, we provide it, it's yeah yeah. But, but it's important because people need to understand that unlike stocks where there's a very clear pattern, right? There's the open is a, is a big print. It kind of drifts down. And then there's a close is the bigger this print. Thing never, this thing never stops trading. Yeah. It never stops trading. And so you need to be able to participate. Uh, and we give people the ability to look at moving averages, et cetera, to disguise their trading better than, than normal. But the truth is it's very popular. And that is something that matters. And that's as you institutionalize markets, it turns out that, that that's not a horrible way to trade. The reason people used to be terrified of that in, in Bitcoin was because there was so much wash trading going on that you could be manipulated. And it's worth talking about. On the major exchanges, that's really not happening anymore. And, you know, obviously in the derivative world and some of the other stuff, yeah, there are those volumes, the volume to open interest looks too high. And we could have a whole conversation about whether what we think is real in crypto. But the notion, and this is the point that I wanted to get to that I mentioned before, 
there are a lot of people in the, in the crypto community who keep saying, oh my God, it's institutionalizing Bitcoin, it's ruining it. Oh my God, we don't, you know, tinfoil hats, you know, types are, are like, oh my God, BlackRock's going to own it. First of all, BlackRock doesn't own anything. BlackRock's investors and clients own what they own. So every single person says, well, there's a God can't, there's a, there's a bit of God. I mean, you know, I love Mike, but you know, but Mike Alfred, but when, when he talks about, you know, BlackRock was on the bid, it wasn't BlackRock that's on the bid. It's BlackRock clients that are on. That's right. To be fair, fair, it's $10 trillion of assets underlying. Right. The point I'm making is, is there was this, there are people who are saying, oh, this is going to ruin Bitcoin is no longer an opt-out. It's like, no. Michael Saylor, actually, when you listen to him, he makes this point. And I, we were on one of your crypto town halls when he made this point that, look, the point here is to get people into their zeitgeist, into their consciousness that Bitcoin is sound money. And, and what's the best way to do that? Get them exposure to it, have the price go up. They'll see that it becomes rec- it becomes reflection. And no, and no, it's money. And that's why Mike McClone wants to see the beat. Because that <laughs> is that reflexive point going on. I'm just saying yeah. that we're kind of earlier in that narrative now. The fact is, at some point, there's only two ways for hyper-Bitcoinization to happen. One is an organic path where it becomes the denominator that more and more people value view money at. And the other is the absolute, you know, we have a Mad Max thunder, you know, Mad Max, you know, Fury Road kind of scenario where everything breaks and people want to create a new system from scratch and from the ashes. I uh-huh. personally would prefer to live in the incremental one than the Mad Max Fury Road. Yeah. And, and, and that's just something that, that you have to think about. It. How do you get from here to there? It has to either be organic or you have to assume some sort of cataclysm. You know, I kind of don't want to live through a cataclysm. I don't know about you guys. I literally so said that on a podcast with uh, Austin Federer from Solana yesterday. I, I make that Mad Max joke all the time. Nobody, nobody wants to be that right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, guys, we're up against time. I didn't even ask the question. The the Bitcoin new all time high. Personally, I'm just going to say I would still be surprised if we make a new all time high ahead of what seems to be the normal having cycle. I think uh, we're higher than we should be because of the ETF trade, which is wonderful. Nothing. I shouldn't say I would be surprised, but my still base case is the normal going to April. Yay, having price doesn't do anything because nothing happens at the having. We have kind of a boring summer, and then next fall election season, up we go. Yes, yeah, you give the quick two second take, James. It's, big, it's Bitcoin. You know, it could it could trade back down anything. to thirty two thousand. It could <laughs> and it could test it could test those new highs between now and April. I mean, it's just reality. It's what it is, and it 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 does depend on what's going on in the market and liquidity. But uh, I personally, the because of the narrative shift, because of where we see the spending and we see what the market is doing. And because election year, I, I think that we are going to we're going to continue to march higher and test those highs. Do I think we make new highs by then having that's hard? Doesn't to matter. But doesn't matter. I do. Th- I do think we do make new highs this year. That's me. Dave, I think that the next few weeks we march higher. Uh, I then think that March is a very dangerous season for the magnificent Taxes. seven. And if there is a NASDAQ, you know, risk asset correction, Bitcoin will correct with it. I is think that, that because people are taking profit for taxes? Is that the base case there? Yeah, yeah. Part of it, yeah. The base case is that people have to sell where they yeah. where they made money for capital gains from last year. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I, 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 that's generally that was the that was the pin in two thousand. Uh, for that many, it wasn't that many correction, but whatever. I, I still think that's a scenario. If that doesn't happen, I think we see all-time highs around the having, which, by the way, is not usual for people who who don't watch this. The having usually is not when the high is. The high is generally no. six months after. You get a correction after the having. <laughs> that's right. So I, I I don't think anyone's talking about the having narrative right now, and I don't think and so it, except for the brick, except for people like us, I think the people putting in their four hundred one k couldn't care less. And so I, I do think that the next few weeks, we probably have more rally and then there's a danger period and we'll see what happens. I mean, I, I think that it, it's important to understand how that navigates. I, I don't disagree that correlations go to one if there's a major sell-off in the stock market. But if the stock market keeps marching higher all year long, yeah, Bitcoin's going to way in advance of when you would expect to make its, its all-time high. Yeah. Mike? No clue. 
Okay. <laughs> I'm trying to figure it out. Okay. Like, that's good. That's good. Just leave it at that. Right Here's answer. the key thing I'll point out is we have to expect the past performance of Bitcoin not to be indicative of the future. I have to expect volatility to continue to decline. The key inflection point was when futures launched in 2017. That started the ARB. Most of that ARB is gone. That was an awesome ARB. I just enjoyed the people I talked to doing it because like, wow, I haven't seen that since OTC options in the 80s um, in my background. So I look at it as the problem with um, um, speculative risk assets and like the stock market advancing too fast is it takes the Fed out of the picture. No easy. You're not going to get the ease. You basically kind of need a, a correction in risk assets um, means the stock market for the get liquidity to turn on. And then there'll be a year or two now we point out, okay, how long is it going to take to get to the new plateau? And then we want to see the beef in Bitcoin outperforming. It probably will outperform. It's just a question of getting to that inflection point and you know, like I said, it's been a good year this more this in, in the stock market already this year, and it's only two months in. <laughs> so the good news is that uh, the good news is that this show is so well established that I can confidently say that we'll be here to discuss it, whatever happens at the happening yeah. and beyond. So uh, I'll take that as a win. And Mike, I liked your answer. I have no idea. It's the proper answer. It's, it's the correct answer. I did put people on the spot. That's, that's the true. answer that I give when people ask me. I'm like, I, my crystal ball's broken, man. I have no idea. Guys, that's all we got. We obviously ran over time. It's a holiday. Going to let these get, gentlemen go uh, enjoy the day. Thank you guys for showing up uh, when you could obviously be doing other things. I mean, James, you woke up uh, early for us on a holiday, nonetheless. So we, we appreciate you guys. I'll, of course, be back tomorrow, guys, 9 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. See you guys soon. Peace. That's dope.